Good morning. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer this morning. Our Father in heaven, as we come together and study a most important topic today, we ask that your spirit will join us. Give us wisdom and discernment and clarity and and ability to uh, comprehend the truth and the evidences you've given us that we can come uh, to a better understanding of your kingdom and your plan to heal and restore. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. We are doing uh, lesson number four in the quarterly, uh, the Gospel in Galatians, and the title is Justification by Faith Alone. When you read the title, when you hear the title, what comes to mind? What does it mean? What law lens do you hear the words through? Before we can even address questions like justification or atonement, we have to determine some basic facts. I'm going to ask you some some questions. What are some basic facts here? What is sin? Transgression Transgression of the law. Thank you. Is this transgression of the law behavioral, a deed, an act, or is it a condition of heart and mind that leads to deeds and acts. What, when we talk about this transgression of the law, is it doing something? Or is it even if you don't do it, you have the wrong condition of heart and mind, you're still in transgression of the law? Behavioral or conditional? Condition. Condition, okay. And you want a Bible text for that? Everything that does not come from faith is sin. Romans fourteen twenty three. What is faith? Faith is a condition of heart, right? Condition of trust. The focus is the focused on the specific act or the motivation. It's on the motivation in Romans 14, not on the act itself. Then how does transgression of the law relate to this condition of heart and mind? Which law? There you go. Beautiful. Which law? Which law lens are you looking for? So how does God's law function? Does God's law function no differently than the laws that human beings make up? A list of rules that require oversight, judicial uh, action, imposition of imposed penalties. This is how human laws work. Does God's law function no different than that? He just has better rules, and he's more honest and more has get better integrity, so he never makes any mistakes. There's no, there's no false convictions. Uh, but but it, functionally, it just functions the same. He's just better at doing it. Yeah. By the way, this view that God's law functions like that, with God as the perfect arbiter of right and wrong and, and has perfect investigation and he never makes any mistakes and thus he gives out perfect punishments and the only punishes exactly what we need, this is Satan's argument. Amen. If you like the book Desire of Ages, in page 761 it says, every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan from the opening of the great controversy in heaven. This was his argument. If God's law is designed, though, though, he builds space, time, energy, matter, life, and his laws are the protocols upon which reality exists, then, then what is transgression of the law? Breaking natural laws. Which result in damage to the lawbreaker. When we, when, we, when we deviate from God's design, break his law, it injures, damages. It can injure us physically. It always injures us spiritually. Sears our conscience, warps our character, hardens our heart, makes us less and less like God designed human beings to be. Um, if sin is breaking laws that function like human laws, though, and if, if that's your model, God's got rules, rules require punishment, the punishment is death, then if that's your model, then what, what would justification be? It would be some legal uh, adjustment. It's a legal process. You have to get the legal payments and, and, and so forth. This is what the theologians argue. If it's design law, though, then what is justification? Fixing what's broken. Restoration. To the Restoration. So this week, I discovered, five months ago, there was a lecture given to a group of pastors by a theology professor who spoke for over an hour, and the entire talk was 
focused on what we teach in here and how it's wrong. Referring to this class? This class and me by name. Oh. And they would take stuff from our website and show it out of context and criticize. But they talked about justification. And they said, and this is, this is the found, one of the foundational rationales for their position, the word justification is legal language and therefore requires a legal explanation. Because justification is legal language, you have to have a legal explanation. There's several problems with the theologian's explanation. First, the Bible was not written in English or Latin, and therefore the word justification does not exist anywhere in Scripture. It's a translated word supplied by those who, when they translated, already had a legal bias, believing God's law functions like ours, so when they translate, they read into it legal stuff and thus use legal words. Secondly, though, even if we accept the justify word, legal definitions are not the only legitimate and accurate definitions to the word. Justify also has the meaning when your margins are out of line and you line them all up on the edge of the page, what did you just do to your margins? You justified them. Was that a legal action? No, that was an actual moving. You actually changed something to put it in line. So justify also means actually making an action that takes something that's out of line, out of harmony, out of place, and putting it back where it belongs. That's justifying. And there's another justify. It also means to show or to demonstrate or to prove an action or position or a person or a claim is right. To justify why this is the right thing to do, Okay, it also means that. The legal view of justification being a declaration, not a demonstration, that's what they'd say. It's a declaration. It decla we declare. Justification is God declaring. The legal view is not biblical. I will tell you right now, it's a lie. Based on a lie that God's law functions like our law. The other two views are biblical. Setting right and demonstrating the rightness of God. In fact, Paul, in Romans chapter 3, 25 and 26 uses justify for God proving or demonstrating that he was right. The third definition that we went through, and this is out of the Good News Translation, uh, 25 and 26 of Romans 3. God offered him so that by his blood he should become the means by which people's sins are forgiven through their faith in him. God did this in order to demonstrate that he is righteous. By the, word, by the way, for those of you who know Greek, the word righteous is the same root as just or justify or justification, rightify, make right, righteous. Same Greek, dikaio, dikaio, sune. Right. In the past, he was patient and overlooked people's sins. But in the present time, he deals with their sins in order to demonstrate his righteousness. In the NIV, it says to demonstrate his justice. Do you hear justice and righteousness the same? We typically don't hear them the same. It's the same Greek. That's where I talk about the supplied legal kind of mindset leads to w words like justice, but righteousness is the same thing. And rightly understood, it is the just thing to do to fix or heal what's broken. Keep it going. In this way, God shows that he himself is righteous and that he puts right everyone who believes in Jesus. Or if you remember the old King James, in this way, he shows that he is just and the justifier of those who who believe in Jesus. Remember that language? That's old King James. He is right. He is righteous. He is just. Same thing. And the rightifier, or makes righteous, or puts right, or justifies, it's an actual making a change in them. 
is what the Bible is teaching. That's the second definition. The first definition of a legal declaration, non-biblical. I'm going to give you evidence for that, though. Don't take my word on it. I don't want anybody to believe because Dr. Jennings said it. Which, by the way, is different than what was in that lecture. In that lecture, one of, one of the other foundational positions was, we have a degree in theology, we've studied theology, and therefore this is our expertise, you should believe because we've studied theology. Dr. Jennings is a doctor, they said this, he doesn't know about theology, you shouldn't listen to him. You know my approach has never been to say believe, even when I do my mental health lectures. When I do my mental health lectures, I said... I'm a doctor. I've studied psychiatry. Believe because I'm a doctor. Do I ever do that to you guys? No, I always say, here's why, and here's the reasons, and here's what's happening. Come to your own conclusion. So justify can mean something legal. It can, that in the English language, that's what the word can mean. But it also can mean setting things right and proving one is right when they're setting it right. We cannot tell from the word itself which meaning is correct, so if you go with a legal mindset already preconceived, then you'll come away with a legal conclusion. So from Wikipedia, which does a really good job of defining penal substitutionary views of justification by faith, this is what a uh, little couple paragraphs say. Sola fida, which is Latin for by faith alone. Sola alone, fida, faith. Also known as justification by faith alone, is a Christian theological doctrine that distinguishes most Protestant denominations from the Catholic Church and Eastern Orthodox Church and some parts of the Restoration Movement. The doctrine of sola fide, salvation by faith alone, or justification by faith alone, asserts God's pardon for guilty sinners is granted to and received through faith alone, excluding all works. All mankind is asserted, it is asserted, is fallen and sinful under the curse of God and incapable of saving itself from God's wrath and curse. But God, on the basis of the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ alone, solus Christus, grants sinners judicial pardon, or justification, which is received solely through faith. Faith is seen as passive, merely receiving Christ and all his benefits. Among the benefits are the active and passive um, righteousness of Jesus Christ. Christ's righteousness, according to the followers of sola fide, is imputed or attributed by God to the believing sinner, as opposed to infused or imparted. You know, imputed versus imparted. We're going to get to that later in the lesson. The legal view, imputed. He he accounts it in some legal way in a a book in heaven that he puts the the registry uh, of Jesus' perfection in yours and then declares in a legal setting that you are now considered legally righteous even though you haven't had a change and you're still not righteous. That's imputed. The imparted would be the change that happens in you. So, Martin Luther, who was the father of the salvation by or justification by faith alone opposed the catholic teaching of righteousness by a combination of jesus sacrifice and our works luther's position was that our works of penance pilgrimage offerings abasement flagellation or any other work could not set us right with god could not justify us we in this class agree completely there's no work we can do that adds to the work that christ has done to fix and heal what's damaged in sinners we agree completely There is no added work. Our justification is by faith, trust in Christ alone. There's no question. The question that separates our position with the legal penal view is not whether we can contribute to our own justification, because we cannot. The question is, what is justification? (laughs) That's the question. Is it legal or is it actual? Something that actually happens for real. Is it declared but not experienced? 
or is it declared only once it is experienced? This is the big divide. The theology professors in this community teach that justification is declaring someone to be righteous even though they're not. That if you've experienced it, that's not justification, that's sanctification, that's that's imparting, not imputing, and they make this distinction between the words. And the reason this divide exists, the foundation or the root of this division, how do you understand God's law? If God's law functions like human law, then legal actions are necessary. You have to have a judicial process. You have to investigate. You have to look at the records. Somebody has to pay the price. The law has to be maintained. How do you maintain the integrity of the law? Well, the law has no teeth. It has no power. It has no meaning if there's no punishment. If we have a speed limit in College Dale for... And, and do they have a speed limit in College Dale? Yeah, everybody knows, right? Okay? If there's a speed limit in College Dale, 35 miles an hour, but 100% of people who do 40, 50, 60 always get off. There's never, there's never a ticket written. There's never a consequence. Then that law becomes meaningless. So if you're operating under that model, then you have to have impositions of penalties or else the law becomes worthless and meaningless. And so God's law is not worthless and meaningless. So he has to punish. This is level four moral development. Law and order. And thus justification is the righteousness of Jesus imputed or declared to the legal records in the courtroom of the sinner. Further, those who hold that view accuse us of teaching moral influence theory. What's moral influence theory? Moral influence theory is Christ came to reveal truth, to dispel lies, to influence our hearts, to be morally changed and trust him. And that's all was necessary, just to win us back to trust, basically, to influence our hearts. And they accuse us of teaching this. We do not promote moral influence theory. I've written extensively and explained repeatedly why that is insufficient to resolve the sin problem. It was part of it. He Absolutely, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, you will know the truth, the truth will set you free. So it was absolutely part of his mission was to morally influence us. There's no question, but it was insufficient. Why was it insufficient? Because we have a terminal condition. And if you have a terminal condition... And there's a doctor with remedy that will heal you, but you don't trust the doctor. You think he's actually got poison. He's going to poison you. But it's really a remedy, but you believe it's poison. Will you let the doctor give it to you? No. You have to be one to trust. But let's say you're one to trust in this doctor. He's really caring. He's compassionate. He only wants best for you. But he has no remedy. Does winning you to trust resolve your problem? Both have to happen. We have to be one back to trust God, and God has to have remedy. And we're going to unpack in this class what the remedy that Christ achieved is here in just a few minutes, but you have to have both. Moral influence theory stops at winning to trust, but fails to explain what the remedy that is that Christ provides. Now, it is true that if you're dealing with a doctor who has the remedy, you don't actually have to understand how the remedy was developed. You don't have to understand how the remedy works. All you ultimately have to do to experience the benefit of the remedy is to genuinely trust him and follow his instructions. So people at level five moral influence theory level of development can absolutely be healed and be saved and experience that transforming, and and, and they may and but they don't understand any more than that. That's okay because they trust him completely and they follow him. But to save us required more than just winning us to trust. The condition itself had to be dealt with. In the uh, lecture that I watched, it's kind of sad and funny and depressing all at the same time. The reason they tell we're moral influence theory, because if you understand moral developmental levels, you can really only comprehend one level beyond the level you're currently operating at. 
And so people who t- say that are diagnosing, it's, it's, it's evidence that they're stuck at level four. That's why they say we're level five. And in this lecture, if you listen, if you listen to the lecture, he says several times there are things like, well, Jennings said this, but I didn't really understand it. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, well, you know, he took this and he, and, and he took moral influence theory and he added a bunch of stuff to it. Um, but when you take that stuff away, it's just moral influence theory. He, he said stuff like that. When you get down to it, well, that's like saying, you know, he put wings and an engine on it and called it an airplane, but when you took the wings and engine away, you just had a soapbox. <laughs> and that's what, that's what they were doing. Yeah, take all the stuff away that makes it not moral influence theory, and then you get moral and you can feel comfortable criticizing that I teach moral influence theory. I, I want to say again, I think they're being as honest as they're capable of being. I don't think they're being dishonest. I don't think they're being evil in their tent. I think their motives are good but they don't comprehend what we're actually saying. Jesus had the same problem in his day. He presented design law. Look at, look at the parables of Jesus. Look at the actions of Jesus. Look at what he did over and over again. You will see he is constantly working through design law. And those who had the imposed imperial law, hey, wait a second. Our rules say that you should not harvest on Sabbath. Your disciples are pulling heads of grain. That's sin. Our rules say you should wash your hands in a certain way. Your disciples aren't doing that. Our rules say you should fast certain times of the week. Your disciples aren't doing that. Our rules say you shouldn't uh, carry a mat on Sabbath. You told them to carry a mat on Sabbath. Our rules say that we should stone this woman. You didn't want to stone her. Why? He's working through design law. They're working through a rule system. And over and over again, there was tension between the two of them. The apostles, after Pentecost, refused to promote a legal theology, and they were opposed by the Judaizers, who wanted all these rules followed. John Wesley was opposed by the leaders of the Anglican Church, the Church of England, and, and they actually started making fun of him when he, was, when he was starting preaching righteous by faith. They started calling him a Methodizer. That's where the Methodism came from. It was an actual negative term, initially from the Church of England. Jones, Wagner, and White, when presenting a healing views after 1888, were obstructed and opposed by the legal teachers and leaders in the church. We're still facing the same long battle who is God? How do you understand his government to work? Like the governments of a sinful human? Like a Caesar? Like Rome? Which penal substitution teaches? Or do we worship the creator, the designer, who operates on design protocols of love, truth, and freedom? So, under the design law, justification is different. Let's ask some questions. When Adam and Eve sinned in Eden, did God get changed? No. Did God's law get changed? Did the actual condition of Adam and Eve get changed? Yes. Something changed in them. Yes, they did. So, what needs then, in order for atonement, at one unity, reconciliation, salvation, the ridding of the universe of sin, what needs to happen? Does something need to happen to God? Does something need to happen to God's law? Does something need to happen to Adam and Eve? To the descendants of humankind. So, Justification, setting right, what's wrong, God's law doesn't need anything set right, it's right. Humankind needs to have, and what are the metaphors? The law written on the heart and mind, circumcision of the heart by the spirit, the heart of stone removed, the heart of flesh put in, on and on and on it goes. Something needs to be done to fix sinners. So jumping to Friday's lesson, from um, the very first paragraph, from the book, Faith and Works, page 18. For those who don't know, this was written by Ellen White, one of the founders of the Adventist Church. The danger has been presented to me again and again 
who was presenting this to her? One of the local preachers? Oh, so, so this is for most Adventists would assume that when she says presented to me again and again in her conversations and prayers and meditations and so forth with God, she's getting this instruction, this enlightenment from God. This is what this implication is. has been presented to me again and again of entertaining as a people false ideas of justification by faith. I have been shown for years that Satan would work in a special manner to confuse the mind on this point. The law of God has been largely dwelt upon and has been presented to congregations almost as destitute of the knowledge of Jesus Christ and his relation to the law as was the offering of Cain. I have been shown that many have been kept from the faith because of the mixed, confused ideas of salvation, because the ministers have worked in a wrong manner to reach hearts. The point that has been urged upon my mind for years is the imputed righteousness of Christ. So what is being warned about here? Teaching a false view of righteousness by faith. That's what's being warned about. Which dwells on law. A legal approach to righteousness by faith. By the way, another word, another way to say righteousness by faith is justification by faith. That's the same thing. This approach to a legal view of justification by faith obstructs the gospel and keeps people from the faith. Here's another quote from the same author, Faith I Live By, page 111. What is justification by faith? I like those because it's, oh, here's an answer. Here's an answer. What is it? Okay, here, I love that. Okay. Here's what this author says. It is the work of God in laying the glory of man in the dust and doing for man that which is not in his power to do for himself. When men see their own nothingness, they are prepared to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. The thought that the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us, not because of any merit on our part, but as a free gift from God, is a precious thought. The enemy of God and man is not willing that this truth should be clearly presented, for he knows that if the people receive it fully, his power will be broken. Now, the big question we're going to go into in just a moment, we're going to, as we unpack this, when you hear imputed, are you hearing it through decades of indoctrination that imputed means some legal accounting in heaven? I'm going to suggest to you that teaching is exactly what keeps people from receiving the benefit. And thus Satan's power is not broken because they teach the imputed righteousness is legal. Therefore, they're not experiencing it here. Where is it happening? Somewhere out there, in books, in courtrooms, way far away from me. So what work could we not do for ourselves? Can't save ourselves. Can't save ourselves. And what does that mean? What does it mean to be saved? If you're, again, got... got can't cure ourselves. Can't cure ourselves. I love that. Can't fix what's wrong, that, that we were born in sin, conceived in iniquity. We have a condition we didn't choose. We can't fix it. Yeah. I have a question. Going back to righteousness and justification working hand in hand, when the Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one, can justification be in place of righteous also? It's, it's the same Greek, dikaio, dikaio sune. Same Greek, yes. There is none who is just. There is none who is right. There is none who is in perfect harmony with how I've constructed reality to work. That's what righteous is. That's what justice is. That's what justification is. Putting things right, setting things right. So some are, are different actions of the same word. So being righteous would be in a state of righteousness. 
Um, justifying would be the act of putting something that's not yet righteous back into a righteous state. So there is none who is righteous, no, not one. There is none who is perfectly just, no, not one. What is the actual problem that human beings have because of Adam and Eve's sin? Is it a problem of a legal problem or is it a state of being problem, something wrong with us? And so what do we need to be right with God? In order to be right with God, do we need a new record in heaven? Do we need a new legal document in the courts of heaven? Do we need a new legal declaration from the ruler of heaven? Or do we need a new heart and right spirit? Does God's law, does God's law need to be sustained, supported, and shown to be without defect? Yes. Yes, it does. That was not a trick question. Yes. How? How does God's law get to be sustained, supported, and shown to be without defect? Under the penal view, because the perfect payment was made and God killed his son, executing him, showing that even when you have a perfect, that, that there will be no deviations and that law is sustained by the execution of Jesus by God himself. If you think I'm being too strong with that, I'm going to give you some quotes here in just a second to prove that's what they say. Design view, how is the law sustained? By doing what the law requires. And what does the law require? Perfectly restoring humankind back into harmony with how life was designed. So here's out of Desire of Ages 762. The law requires righteousness, a righteous life, a perfect character. Pause before I go on to the next sentence. Why does the law require this? Why does the law of respiration require that you breathe? And it is a requirement for life. If you want to live, the law of respiration requires that you breathe. It's a requi- that is so unfair. <laughs> so punitive. It's so wrong. If I stop breathing, I should be able to live just as long as the person who breathes. It's so arbitrary. No, it's designed this way. Understanding design law frees us from this ridiculous penal thing. And so the law requires righteousness, a righteous life, a perfect character, because that's how life was constructed. And if you're not, in, if you're not like, like that, you have a terminal condition. You're dying. Keep going. And this man has not to give. He cannot meet the claims of God's holy law. But Christ, coming to earth as man, lived a holy life, and notice this, developed a perfect character. This he offers as a free gift to all who will receive them. Pause again. I'm going to finish the whole paragraph, but right now. What is another way of saying a holy life and a perfect character? Righteousness. Righteousness. The righteousness of Christ. The robe of Christ's righteousness. These are simply talking about a holy life, a perfect character. That's the righteousness of Christ. And what is another way of saying he offers these as a free gift to all all who will receive it? Salvation. Salvation. You could say that for sure. Another word we've already used here today, imputed. This is a gift I'm I'm giving to you. It's a gift. Here, take it. It's not a legal declaration. It's a remedy of a new heart, life, attitude, desires, mindset within the believer received from Christ. Keep going with the quote. His life stands for the life of men. I'm going to come back to what that means in a second. Thus they have remission of sins that are passed through penal view. How do we get remission of sins? Through what? Except payment of the blood. This author says, through the forbearance of God. What? Forbearance? What, what does forbearance mean? Patience, forgiveness. 
Yes, no payment, no payment. Keep going. More than this, Christ imbues man with the attributes of God. He builds up the human character after the similitude of the divine character, a goodly fabric of spiritual strength and beauty. Thus, the very righteousness of the law is fulfilled in the believer in Christ. God can be just and the justifier of him who believes in Jesus. There's those two definitions. Just, what was it? Restoring in the believer, setting what's broken in the believer back into perfection. That's the one aspect of justification. And the other aspect, thus he's also the justifier proving that he was right to do so. The penal view, non-biblical. To me, it seems like the issue is conversion. If conversion is just a mental assent that God is right, and it has no effect on me, But conversion should be a reversal of your life, a reversal of direction, and not only an ascent that is something right, I am bringing it into my life. Exactly right. Conversion, true Christian conversion, is not an ascent to an idea. The devils believe and tremble. The end of the great white throne judgment, all knees shall bow, and the Bible says and acknowledge that, that Christ was right. That's a cognitive ascent to reality. That is not conversion where your heart is changed to love that reality. They acknowledge it's the reality, but they still hate that reality. They're not converted. True conversion is the heart being changed to this is the reality we love, and we desire to be like it. We know we can't make ourselves like it, but we are cooperative and willing for Christ to indwell us with his righteousness, and we get new desires, new motives, new heart. And we grow in godliness over time. That's real conversion. That's a good point. So, what is justice? And what is justifying here? I just went through the two definitions and what it doesn't mean. And what was necessary? What was necessary? What did the law require? A righteous character. A righteous human character. No human being, after Adam sinned, before Jesus Christ incarnation could achieve that jesus christ achieved what we could never achieve he perfected human human character by exercising his human brain and so in that way he is our substitute a lot of times people say well you know he substituted our punishment and death by all the blows he got and crucifixion and all that and went to hell while he was dead and all that too to try to pay payment, and yet what he really did was what we could not do and how he substituted for us was by creating a perfect character. That's exactly right. He, he fixed what was broken. He was our substitute. He took upon himself our iniquity, our sinful condition, and carried humanity onto completion, eradicating the infection of sin and restoring God's designed law righteousness into the human species. This is what he did for us. We could never do it. Um, there's so many levels of of and also justifying God in the process? Why? What did he prove? Here's his humanity, weaker than Adam's humanity. He got fatigued, he got tired, he had to sleep. You know, he suffered powerful human emotions of, that caused him agony in Gethsemane. Adam didn't have any of that. And yet he still carries on through perfection, living perfectly God's law all the way through. Proving what? There's no manufacturer's defect. Adam's sin was not because God built him wrong. God designed him wrong. God made him wrong. It doesn't go back on God that Adam sinned. Jesus proved there was no need for Adam to sin because you could live the perfect life in harmony with God's design even in a weaker humanity. So before Christ came on this earth and lived that life, like the people in the Old Testament, how did they understand that they had salvation? 
how they understood it, I don't know how they understood it because I'm not in their head. How could they have understood it? They could have understood it in these ways. You find all these things in the Old Testament. Many of them failed to understand it because while they were trying to be enlightened, there was an enemy afoot who was constantly working to obstruct and misrepresent and bring in pagan God God constructs and pagan appeasement myths. And so you find this battle all through the Great Controversy from the time of the war that began in heaven all the way to the fall of humankind through all human history. There's these two versions of God being put back and forth and some adherents meaning people who profess to be God's workers misrepresent him and tell the pagan lies and some are actually telling the truth about God sending his son to heal and restore what needed to be fixed. You find this all through. So let me say this. The human species was set right, justified, put right in the person, the humanity of Jesus Christ. Does that confuse anybody when I say it that way? Jesus is the perfect, single perfect human being. And he did his victory. He won his victory as a human being, not as a divine being. Was it saying, James, God tempts no one because God cannot be tempted by evil? Divinity can't be tempted. Jesus was tempted in every way, just like we are, yet without sin, in Hebrews. His temptations were not temptations to his divinity. His temptations were temptations to his humanity. So did his divinity play any part in his life when he was here on earth? His divinity, I think, made him vulnerable to temptation that we don't have to face. When were you tempted to turn rock into bread? On the cross, he had the power, if he wanted to access his divine abilities, to wipe them all out, to come down, to stop it from happening. The two thieves were powerless. They couldn't stop it, but he had the power if he wanted to access it. You read this in Zyre of Ages. But had he done that, Satan would have won because he would have acted selfishly and selfishness would not have been eliminated and, and, and destroyed by what destroyed selfishness? Love. Love. He loved perfectly, thus destroyed that. Well, didn't he access his divinity with his miracles? Nope. He says, I, I, I of my own self do nothing. I of my own strength do nothing. I do everything through trust and faith in his father. He performed miracles like Elisha had the axe head rise, like um, Elijah raised the little boy from the dead. How did Elijah do that from his own? Restoring the blind man to sight who had been blind from birth. That was done strictly in humanity. From his father's power, just like the apostles performed miracles of healing afterwards as well. And uh, how did they do that? through trusting in the Father's power. He lived a life as a human, but he was tempted. He had an, an, an additional avenue of temptation that we did not have. And that was he was tempted to access those divine abilities, but he never did. And think about how strong. If you were being crucified and mocked, and you could just like, okay, just a little micro, just a little drop of divine. Okay. <laughs> I mean, you think about the restraint. And this is one of the things when you read in Revelation. What do you read in Revelation? Worthy, worthy, worthy is the lamb who was one of the allegations of Satan. It's one of, the, one of the things you hear in the world. Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts. God is corrupt because he's powerful. What did Jesus reveal? He has all power, but he's not corrupt. He never will use his power to force his way upon his creatures. In fact, he would rather let his creatures kill him than use his power to stop them. That's how much freedom we have in God's universe. And thus, worthy, worthy, worthy is the lamb who was slain. He's worthy to have all power. He's proven he's trustworthy with it. He'll never abuse his power. Brilliant stuff. You gave an example one time that I really liked. Imagine you had a knife on you and somebody was holding your head in a tub of water and you were drowning, but you had a knife that you could access. How hard would it be to not access that knife 
Wow, you're being drowned by somebody. Yeah, think, think of the urgency of that urge to do that. That is the carnal nature. Revelation describing the, the saved, those who are ready for translation, these are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. That urgency to kill in order to survive is replaced with, I'll give my life that others might live. Greater love is no man that he give his life. This is not something we can achieve by understanding and comprehension and the force of our own human will. This is something that is achieved through partaking of the righteousness of Christ, being renewed and reborn. So, the species saved in Christ, the law of love being restored into Christ's humanity, well, in Christ's life, he lives the law of love, he chooses to lay down his life rather than to act to, to protect his own life, Okay, resulting in what? What did this result in? The, the temptation of fear and selfishness. He was tempted in every way, just like we are, yet without sin. In Gethsemane, he's tempted with strong emotions to not go through the cross. He doesn't want to die. That's, that's very, you know. But what, what does he do instead? He gives his life based on love. And what happens? Christ's humanity, which was subject to death up to that point, rose from the dead. What, is, what does this vindicate? We talked about this. God's law need vindication? having restored God's law perfectly into his humanity, he demonstrates that God's law is the source of life, the basis of life. And you will read this in all my writings all over. The law of love is the law of life for the universe. Or if you like Psalms, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving, bringing life to the soul. And thus Jesus rises again in a humanity perfectly restored. God's law is vindicated. This is the way of life. God was also justified or demonstrated to be right in how he governs and how his laws works and, and the suspending for a period of time the ultimate consequences in grace so that Christ could come and provide remedy and fix what's broken. And Jesus now, his life stands for the life of men. I was going to get back to that. Jesus now stands at the head of humanity. He stands where Adam was originally created to stand. In heaven, Jesus is now the representative of all human beings, the head of the human species. Thus his life stands for, for humanity. And it is, as individuals, we can partake of what Christ achieved, his perfect character restored within us. So our individual justification or setting right is when we move from a heart that distrusts God to a heart that trusts God. Our heart, the natural heart, is against God. But when we have a heart changed that we trust him, our heart has been changed. We, our heart has been set right with him. You may have explained it all by now, but I didn't quite get it. Okay. Mrs. White talks about imputed and imparted. I'm going to get to that in just a moment. Can you hold on? I've got several quotes here. Okay. All right. I'm going to get to that. So the penal view adherents are adamant that imputed righteousness is legal accounting, where God, where God imputes to our records in heaven the righteousness of the Son, declaring us to be legally set right or justified, even though we're not in our hearts set right. They would also teach that imparted righteousness is the experiencing of Jesus within. So the change that we're talking about, they would say that's imparted. That's not imputed. The imputed is the legal thing, and later you get the imparted. They make this distinction. I'm going to tell you, my position is that their distinction is of their own imagination. They've created the distinction. It doesn't exist in reality. It's fantasy, in other words. Let me give you some evidence for that now. In fact, this fantasy, this legal view of things, obstructs the, the final message, what some might call the three angels, of, three angels message. But So here's a quote from... Several quotes from Ellen White, one of the founders of the Adventist Church, showing what was historically taught, at least by some of the founders, about this idea of imputed versus imparted. This is That I May Know Him, page 206. 
He would have us comprehend something of his love in giving his son to die that we that he might counteract evil, remove the defiling stains of sin from the workmanship of God. I'm going to pause. What would you understand that to be referring to? The defiling stains of sin from the workmanship of God, primarily referring to, of course, all creation, but our hearts. Primarily us, right? People. Okay? Keep going. And reinstate the lost elevating and ennobling the soul to its original purity through Christ's imputed righteousness. Is this declared a legal process going on? Uh, do I need to read it? Elevating and ennobling the soul to its original purity. What is being described? A legal thing or something happening within the believer that's fixing, healing, and transforming? Through what? Through Christ's imputed righteousness. Here's... um. But I'm going to give you several because I don't want to. Well, that's just one quote. One quote can mean anything. Let's give you several. This is um, Amazing Grace, page 96. But we all with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as the Spirit of the Lord, 2 Corinthians 3.18. Then she goes on to say, Beholding Christ means studying his life as given in his word. We are to dig for truth as for hidden treasure. We are to fix our eyes upon Christ. When we take him as our personal savior, this gives us boldness to approach the throne of grace. By beholding, we become changed, morally assimilated, to the one who is perfect in character. Next, I'm forgetting the next sentence. Where is the emphasis here? We become changed. The emphasis is in us. By receiving his imputed righteousness through the transforming power of the Holy Spirit, we become like him. Does this sound legal to you? A legal accounting? But we're, there's nothing happening to us. We're just declared even though we're not. Do you see the lie? When we teach people, imputed righteousness is when God declares you to be righteous even though you're not. This is that quote earlier. It cheats people out of genuine righteousness. They're not expecting change. They're not praying for a transforming experience. They're not partaking in their hearts of the righteousness of Jesus. But we become like him through the imputed righteousness of Christ. Let's go to another one. Amazing Grace 181. Abundant grace has been provided that the believing soul may be kept free from sin. For all heaven, with its limitless resources, has been placed at our command. Have you been commanding heaven lately? Do you even think that way? Hey, all the energies and powers and resources for good, for good are at my disposal for my use in doing good and healing and overcoming. Do we think this way? We are to draw from the well of salvation. In ourselves we are sinners, but in Christ we are righteous, having made us righteous through the imputed righteousness of Christ. God pronounces us just and treats us as just. I'm going to read that sentence again having made us righteous through the imputed righteousness of Christ, God pronounces us just and treats us just. What's the sequence here? What comes first? And then, because God doesn't lie, folks. He doesn't say things are this way when they're actually that way. And this whole penal thing makes God out to be a liar. I've had many discussions with the theologians up on the hill, and they absolutely say, God declares us to be righteous even though we're not. I said, so God's lying. No, no, it's legal accounting. Uh, we are considered righteous because Jesus' record is applied to our record, and he declares that in the legal books of heaven we're righteous even though in our hearts we haven't been changed. It's a lie. It cheats people. Notice the sequence here. And so the imputed, Ellen White uses imputed and imparted interchangeably. 
As, as you, like, that didn't bring all the imparted ones. The imparted ones say the same thing, but all the penal people would say, of course, that's what's happening. The imparted is the change within. This was a very powerful one, though, because she gives the sequence of how it happens. That's uh, Amazing Grace 181. One more. Our high calling, page 364. We aim too low. The mark is much higher. Before I even go on, let your mind be thinking, well, what would an aim too low look like? I'm going to come back to that question. You should be able to answer in about 30 seconds from now what a too low of an aim would look like. Um, The mark is much higher. Our minds need expansion that we may comprehend the significance of the provision of God. We are to reflect the highest attributes of the character of God. The law of God is the exalted standard to which we are to attain through the imputed righteousness of Christ. Do you hear a legal accounting, a declaration which, without change? Do you hear, again, imputed is something that we attain? It's, it's, the, it's the means whereby we are restored back to the righteousness and do you think it comes down to trust? For example, what was lost in Eden was trust in God. They didn't trust that he had their best interest at heart. He was holding it back from them. Sure. What we gain back is trust. And in trust, we open the heart. And, and it says in Romans 5, 5, he pours his love into our heart. Love is another way of saying his character. His character, God is love. We partake of Christ, the perfect righteousness of Christ, which is perfect love as well. I mean, all of it kind of works together when we understand this correctly. But did you notice we aim too low? What would be aiming too low in the idea of justification by faith? Would, would it be a legal justification? Would that be too low of an aim? Yeah. Rather than, uh, the, the, what, what does it say? The mark is much higher. Is the mark of actually restoring you to be like Jesus inside much higher than a legal claim? Mm-hmm. That same thought process is not. This is, considering that entire, all of heaven's power is available for our asking. This is why our church has failed to fulfill its last day mission because we're not taking the true gospel to the world yet. Last week, we suggested it might be a good idea to test our doctrines and examine how those doctrines, what those doctrines say about God. So let's look at the idea of penal substitution ideas of justification and what they would say about God if they were true. If the law is imposed and, and requires judicial oversight and the infliction of an imposed death penalty, if that is true, then God becomes the source of death. He inflicts it, he imposes it. Death comes out from God. This is dualism. We have eternal. We have God as the source of life, and God as the source of death. Now we have a universe where there's eternal death and eternal life, all in the same eternal being. This is Eastern philosophy. This is dualism. And those who take this view that death comes out from God as a just punishment, then have God in justice executing Jesus on the cross. And this is out of the twenty-seven fundamental beliefs of Seventh Day Adventist Church, page one eleven. For a loving God to maintain his justice and righteousness, the atoning death of Jesus became a moral and legal necessity. There's the lie. God's justice requires that sin be carried to judgment. God must therefore execute judgment on sin and thus the sinner. In this execution, what's an execution? Ruling authority, doing what? Killing. Killing. In this execution, the Son of God took our place, the sinner's place, according to God's will. So who did they just say killed Jesus on the cross? God must therefore execute judgment on sin, and in this execution, Jesus took our place. So God executed or killed Jesus. 27 Fundamental Beliefs, page 111. Here is Ministry Magazine, uh, February 2007. 
One of the theologians from one of the Adventist uh, seminaries wrote an article about the death of Christ. And this was a magazine put out by the Adventist church. Why did God the Father choose a cross to be the instrument of death? Why did he not choose to have Christ instantly beheaded or quickly run through with a spear or a sword? Was God unjust in executing judgment on Jesus with a cross when he could have done it by beheading a noose, a sword, a gas chamber, a bolt of lightning, or lethal injection? And then review Adventist World Review, December 2007. One of the fundamental problems of the moral influence theory is that it rejects the substitutionary nature of Christ's death. The idea that God had to kill the innocent instead of the guilty in order to save us is considered a violation of justice. Who are they saying killed Jesus here? God. God. No, we do not deny the substitutionary nature of Christ's death. The problem is they're teaching substitution through an imperial law construct where God's law functions like our law and thus somebody had to be executed and thus God executed him and that's substitution. No, we have a terminal state, a condition out of harmony. We're dead in trespass of sin. We can't fix it. We can't remedy it. We can't cure it. We need a substitute to come take the condition and cure and fix and develop a perfect character that we can never do and then offer that remedy to us, which is metaphorically the blood. Metaphorically, when we, if you, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, eating the flesh partaking the words of truth, which dispel the lies. And just as you eat, and by the way, the flesh and blood became bread and wine metaphor. Flesh and bread, molecules that go into your body that become building blocks of, the, of your body. Truths, ideas, concepts that become building blocks of your belief systems, your attitudes, and ultimately, whether you trust or don't trust, and then you partake of the righteousness of Christ that he developed, his blood, the life is in the blood, the perfect life of Christ. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. We get a new heart and right spirit. It's transformational, regenerational. It's real. But this whole legal thing has a whole millions and millions of people in the world resting secure in a payment made to a God who will kill them if they don't get that payment. And thus, they really don't trust God. And they develop theologies that hide them and protect them. I'm covered by the righteousness. The Father can't see me. You know, all these things that distance us rather than search me and see the wicked way in me, creating me a clean heart, O God. And if you choose not to, he will artificially keep you alive so that you can be tortured to eternity. There you go. Or as long as you deserve before he kills you. Yeah. Uh, and then, so what does inspiration say about all of this then? Here's what inspiration says. Isaiah 53, 4. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. In other words, he took our sinful condition. He took our terminal state. Is what it's saying. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. Isaiah prophesied, he's going to come, he's going to take up our iniquities, our infirmities, our sorrows, our condition, in order to heal and save. But we're going to misunderstand the whole thing, and Christians are going to teach that, that, that God killed him, God struck him down, God punished him. It's happened. That's exactly what we're fighting against today. How about Jesus? John eight forty four, Speaking, you belong to your father the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. From the beginning. Who is the beginning of death? But who do these penal substitution theologians teach is the source of death? God is the source of death. Or Galatians 6, 7, and 8. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Before we can go to the next verse, what is reaping and sowing? What kind of law is reaping and sowing? Design law, natural law. The one who sows to please his sinful nature... From that nature reaps destruction. That's exactly, we have a terminal condition. The one who sows to smoke two packs of cigarettes a day, from their two packs of cigarettes a day reap lung disease. It's not an infliction by God. Why is God punishing me with bad lungs? He's not. 
Well, justice requires. God said, thou shalt not smoke, and you smoke. God must punish you. You see, the, the primitive thinking, the childish thinking. Pagan. Yeah, it is pagan. And then, Desire of Ages 761, Satan saw that his disguise was torn away. His administration laid open before the unfallen angels, before the heavenly universe. He had revealed himself as a murderer. By shedding the blood of the Son of God, he had uprooted himself from the sympathies in heaven. All the intelligent beings out the universe now see Satan is a killer. Satan is the source of death. Satan attacked and, and, and inspired evil men to kill Christ at the cross. God did not lay a hand on him. Jesus' own testimony, my God, why have you forsaken me? Let me go. But Christianity is teaching, Adventist church is teaching, God killed Jesus at the cross. Do you understand why the, the, the latter rain hasn't come? Do you think the latter rain, that God is going to pour out his spirit to empower people to go out and lie about him and misrepresent him falsely and present a distorted view of him? No, the latter rain hasn't come. We haven't finished the work because we're taking this, this, this pagan penal view of God to the world. We need to reject it. We need to eject it out of our hearts and minds and out of our institutions. We need to stop putting people in leadership who promote this view. So what is justification in our, our view? Yes. I object. Okay, please. Not Seventh-day Adventist church teaches. We are the church. Some other members may teach that. We don't. Thank you for that clarification. Thank you very much. Good point. Let's, let's clarify. 2,000 years ago, Jesus was a Jew. Human Jew, a part of a Jew, Jewish system. And he, if you look at Jesus, represent Judaism as God intended it to be. Looking to Jesus, that's what Judaism was supposed to be. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the, the people who crucified him, had another form of Judaism, which we would call false Judaism. It was not what it was supposed to be. You with me? So Jesus talks to the woman at the well. The disciples are going, he's talking to a woman. He's talking to a Samaritan. What's going on? Because they had their system, and their system was prejudicial. It was critical. It was rules-oriented. It was legal. It was harsh. It was unkind. It was enslaving. But that wasn't what God designed it to be. It was false. I would suggest within the Adventist church, you're exactly right. There is true Adventism, what we're trying to teach here. And there's this false infection, just like God's church 2,000 years ago, that, that, that many in the organization affiliate with, identify with, and promote. So justification is not a legal status. Instead, it simply means being set right with God. Christ, as our substitute, took defective humanity upon himself, and in his person, his human brain, destroyed the carnal nature, perfected, perf perfectly lived out the law of love, and developed a perfect human character. Therefore, the human race, species, was set right, justified with God in the person of Jesus Christ. There is a human, perfect human being, Jesus. And, and if you get your mind around this, as long as we have one living panda, pandas are not extinct. Because of Jesus, there will always be a human being, a descendant of Adam. He partook of real humanity. It wasn't a new creation. It wasn't a new species. It was the species created in Eden that fell into sin that Jesus healed and fixed. And because of that, there will always be a human. And the species was set right with God in the person of Jesus. Through this achievement, free gift, Christ's perfect character is now offered freely to all humankind, all mankind, every person. Each individual person is, as an individual, justified or set right when they are won back to trust and they open their heart and trust to God. Their heart is changed from distrust and alienation to trust. And is there scripture to support this? I've got the scripture references. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Romans 
4.3. And, in the, and that's the NIV, the good news. Abraham believed God, and because of his faith, God accepted him as righteous. What does it say here? Back to that same quote we read earlier. Abraham trusted God. The natural heart, Romans 8, is enmity or against God, untrusting. So Abraham's heart went from an untrusting state to a trusting state, and therefore, when Abraham trusted him, God recognized or accounted him or declared him or understood him to be or experienced him as set right, righteous, because he now trusts me. This is, having made us righteous through the imputed righteousness of Christ, God pronounces us just and treats us as just. That's what's saying here. Our heart has been changed. Questions about any of this? And that was just Sabbath lesson. <laughs> you got Friday. Sorry, sorry. We, we jumped a little bit onto Friday there, but we got, we got a whole bunch of other stuff, but we have two minutes, and I know this is a, as a... But this is a critical issue, because the theologians confuse people with imputed and imparted and justification and sanctification. It's language. People get really confused. It's not that confusing. Yes? So, if we have no penal code, um, so like there's no penal justice, this human justice, this idea that X equals Y, and that because... I do something wrong, you have to do something wrong to me, this eye for an eye sort of justice. Um, what does that point to logically? So, like, for me, it points to a, a universalist sort of mindset. Because, like, I, I'm just, I'm assuming that if humanity is restored, if this humanity is restored, like, what does that logically point to in the end? Like, I, I don't, I guess so, I'm confused on the end goal of this. Because restorative justice I'm fine with, but where does hell occur in this at all. So, if everybody in the earth, let's use a metaphor, um, has uh, been infected with smallpox, right. and there's a vaccine, some take the vaccine, some claim they've taken the vaccine, but haven't taken a vaccine, they've taken a, nothing at all, some claim they've taken it, but taken a false vaccine, and the vaccine is freely offered to everyone, everybody can have the real one that will, will save them. Is there... Universalism in that? I mean, not quite. No, there's not. No, there's there's universalism. Is, like, is, is restorative justice to me logically ends to that? Because if, restore, if you can start with restorative justice here, with the fact that God has restored all rather than just saved us in substitutionary justice, it seems like to me the next logical step in my mind, like just a little more thought leads me to a universalist, this idea that like if he's done that now, then wouldn't the next like step in that chain, like the, the logical thought chain, if he's done that now, and that's where you lay your foundation, which I'm not saying is wrong in any way, is the next logical step in that a universalist idea to where he has saved, like restorative justice is truly for all beyond choice. Yeah, no, I don't, I don't see it that way because I see one of God's design laws is the law of liberty. Okay. It's a design law. You cannot have love in an atmosphere without freedom. It's not possible. Try it on your significant other. And this is a testable, reproducible law. As soon as you take away freedom, you damage love, eventually destroy it, you incite rebellion, you destroy individuality when you coerce and enforce or threaten or make decisions for people against their will that they're not. And so God has the divine power, because he's infinite, to use his power to go inside everyone's head and to overwrite and put a, a sinless, shall we say, database there but to do that, you don't exist. You're, you're a different creature now. You're not you anymore. You've been raced. He doesn't do that. So the only way for an individual to have salvation is by willful free participation and agreement. 
It's a cooperative effort. We have to cooperate and we have to choose. Some do, some don't. Further, understanding design law and how sin actually works. There's a quote out of First Selected Messages 235. Um, I like it. it. It's very descriptive, but there's other biblical texts that do the same thing. Um, we are not to regard God as waiting to punish the sinner for his sin. Every act of transgression reacts upon the sinner, makes it more easy for him to sin again. And, and ultimately, the sure result is ruin and death. What happens when we sin, we sear our conscience. Sin hardens the heart, warps the character. And if we persist in it over time, we actually destroy within us the faculties that are sensitive to truth and love. And the spirit is the spirit of truth and love. And if we become blind that we can no longer perceive truth, we can no longer respond to love, it doesn't matter that God is for us. It doesn't matter that God wants to fix us. It doesn't matter that God wants to heal us. We're beyond his reach. This is the unpardonable sin, the grieving of the Holy Spirit. We've destroyed and can no longer respond. It metaphorically be like staring at the sun until you go blind. Then you can't see light anymore. The sun comes up every day. It's still shining just as brightly. But you have no benefit from the photons anymore because you've destroyed the ability to process light. There will be people in the end of time who, um, not even yet, there are people in the, walking the earth today have already done this to themselves. There are people, and I can't, I'm not going to point out anybody to say that's them, but just by the numbers of people on the earth, there's no doubt in my mind there's some people that have gone past that line. I don't know who they are. We will find out in the end, but this is what, what happens. It's design law stuff. It's consequence of choice. So I don't believe in universalism at all. Right, yeah, no, totally. I mean, I'm not saying you do. It just seems like to me for the next logical stuff in my head is that if we have restorative justice, then we also have something else. It, it doesn't seem logical to me when I understand how design law works uh, and, and that love only ex- uh, exists in the atmosphere of freedom and God gives genuine freedom. If God were to do anything else, then this whole process here of 6,000 years is senseless. He could have just fixed Lucifer in heaven. There would have been no rebellion. He would just, uh, if he was going to use any other method than freedom... He just uses power to either execute him, kill him, get in line, or else uh, wipe him out and wipe the memory of him out from all intelligent beings and do it a billion times over the trillions of years. And every time a question comes up, he just knocks that one off. Nobody remembers that person ever existed. Uh, he doesn't work that way. We have real freedom. Yeah. The last paragraph on wisdom lessons. Uh-huh. I thought at least some acknowledgement. A careful examination of scriptures reveals that faith involves not only knowledge about God, but a mental consent or acceptance of that knowledge. This is one reason why having an accurate picture of God is so important. Distorted ideas about the character of God can actually make it more difficult to have faith. But an intellectual assent to the truth of the gospel is not enough. I'm sorry. No, that's right. For in that sense, even the demons believe. True faith also affects the way a person lives. In Romans 1.5, Paul writes about the obedience of faith. Paul is not saying that obedience is the same as faith. He means true faith affects the whole person, whole of a person's life, not just the mind. It involves commitment to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, as opposed to just a list of rules. In other words, faith as much as what we do, how we live, and whom we trust, as what we believe. Yep, no. that, that was a good paragraph. Yep. Good paragraph. Love does not exist in a vacuum. Yep. Yep. So hopefully I've given you some things to think about. And when you face some of the theologians, you have to first, I would tell you as a stratagem, when you start a dialogue with anybody, before you even talk about justification, before you talk about atonement, before you talk about sanctification, before you talk about any of this stuff, you should step back and say, tell me how you understand God's law. Because if they're operating under 
well, God's law is just. It's, it's perfect. Yeah, but what happens if you break it? What's the consequence? Have him describe the function of the law. If it functions like, well, as the rule giver, he must enforce his law, and they're operating at that level, you will not enlighten them to what we're teaching until they first understand the law doesn't function that way. So as long as they hold to that, it blinds them. They can't see it. And if you don't, don't take my word for it. Look at the conversations Jesus had with the Pharisees in his day over and over again. They just could not see it. And he was doing the same thing. So that's where I would start. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are our creator, our designer, the builder of reality, a God who is love, a God who gives us real freedom, a God who doesn't use his power to coerce, a God who sent Jesus to fix what sin did to this creation that we could never fix on our own. As our substitute, taking our terminal condition upon you to heal and overcome, to destroy the infection, to develop a perfect character. And we ask now that your spirit will come and take all that you've achieved and reproduce it in us so that we have new hearts and right spirits. It's no longer our old, selfish, fear-based self-living, but you're living in us. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.